The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. If you have your Bible, go with me to the book of Matthew. We're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through this wonderful account of the gospel. We're in chapter 10. This is part 37 of our uh, <laughs> of our journey, but I hope you've enjoyed it. I man, I, I I love the Gospel of Matthew. So, if you would stand, uh, chapter ten, Matthew chapter ten, beginning in verse sixteen, and we'll read today through verse twenty six. The word of the Lord says this: Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of this household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. I do not have time to give the details of, of every single verse today, but uh, I do want to bring out some wonderful truths that I believe will really help us. One of the uh, objectives of any loving parent is to prepare his or her children for life in the real world. And if you are a parent, you know this is no easy feat. That mission requires a balance of encouragement where we teach our children of the good of God's creation and their potential to do good in the world, and then to balance that with brutal honesty about the evil and malevolence that exists in the world. See, if we focus on giving our children encouragement only, if we feed them this kind of pie-in-the-sky version of the world, when they go to leave and be on their own, life will disappoint them. They'll be left jaded, and, and quite frankly, life will probably crush them. On the other hand, if kids only hear of the evil and suffering in the world, like if you scare them to death, it's like they'll be paralyzed with fear, and they won't want to venture out at all. So preparing children for the world requires this kind of delicate balance of both encouragement and 
warning. We're preparing new believers for their Christian life requires that same kind of balance, doesn't it? It's like on one hand, being a real follower of Jesus is the best thing in the world. It's the blessed life. Like you get to be part of God's kingdom. You get to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You get life and you get it abundantly. You, are, you, you receive the Holy Spirit. You're infused with love and joy and peace and mercy and goodness and all of the great things that the Lord offers us. But then on the other hand, living a Christian life and taking part in the Great Commission uh, and, and living out biblical kingdom principles in this secular world can be extremely difficult, can it not? When we live by the values of the kingdom, we will be mocked and will be persecuted. When we proclaim the gospel, we will be rejected by some. And in some parts of the world, you know, Christians are risking their very lives today for the sake of the gospel. So as human beings, we naturally have an issue, a problem with dealing with prejudice and persecution. We don't like to be looked at, do we, as peculiar or misfits. So from an early age, we, we go to kind of extreme lengths to avoid being mocked and, and ridiculed. We, we want to fit in with the world. But the reality is that uh, of the Christian life is that we are called to be misfits. We are called to be a peculiar people. And Jesus calls us. The call, by the way, is not optional. To, to, he calls us all to proclamation, to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to a lost and broken world, even at the risk of persecution. It's like, well, how do we deal with that? But the good news is we're not the first ones to have to answer that question. Persecution, rejection, uh, being mocked and called bigots, these are, this is nothing new. The apostles were threatened and beaten and, and either martyred or exiled because of their faith. Jesus Christ himself, as you know, was greatly persecuted and ultimately hung on a cross. In our text today, I think these words will help us prepare for rejection, for persecution that's sure to come. I love how upfront, how honest Jesus is about the Christian life, particularly in this chapter with his disciples. He didn't feed them some pie-in-the-sky version of the Christian life that is so prominent uh, in, in the contemporary church, like come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. That balance that I spoke about, namely uh, the, the balance of blessings and hardships that accompany the Christian life, is precisely what we see Jesus giving his apostles in their commissioning in Matthew chapter 10. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first 15 verses of this chapter, and you can imagine the excitement of the disciples as Jesus called them to himself. They have witnessed Jesus uh, going throughout the land and crowds uh, pressing against him. And he was healing the sick and, and, and he raised the dead and he, he set de the demon possessed free. 
and he preached words of hope, the, the gospel of the kingdom. And now he has called his disciples to himself, and he says, listen, I am, you're part of my inner circle. I'm sending you out, and you get to proclaim this same gospel. And by the way, I'm going to give you, apostles, this special authority to do the things that you have seen me doing. And so you might imagine the excitement of disciples, like, this is going to be awesome, we get to preach that the Messiah has come to our people, and we get this special authority and power given us by, to us by Jesus himself to do these miracles. This is going to be awesome. And then Jesus kind of reigns on their parade. <laughs> and it's like this. Well, by the way, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You know, the idea, the metaphor of sheep and wolves, it's, it's, a, it's, it's common. It's a common metaphor in the Bible. We Christians are often likened to sheep. In John 10, 11, I'll just read it for you. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we know that's what Jesus did for us. It's an interesting book by Philip Keller. It's entitled, A Shepherd's Look at the 23rd Psalm. Ron, it's no accident that you read Psalm 23 today. And, and in the book, he points out how vulnerable sheep are to many dangers. For instance, plants can be a danger to sheep because they will eat anything inside. It kind of sounds like us in the South, doesn't it? They'll, they'll eat poisonous vegetation, so they've got to really be guarded from that. They're highly vulnerable to extreme weather conditions. They have no protection against bad weather. They're prone to cuts and abrasions, as well as diseases from insects and parasites, so they have to constantly be checked by the shepherd for those things. But the greatest danger to sheep comes from predators like the wolf. And so Jesus, the good shepherd told his disciples, hey, by the way, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst the wolves. And Jesus used that graphic illustration to warn and prepare his disciples for the rejection and the persecution that they would soon face. So as we've seen in the last few weeks, chapter 10 is specifically about the call of the 12 disciples. And these men, uh, and then the apostle Paul and Matthias, who is, replaces Judas, they functioned in a unique calling within church history. The 12 were personally trained from ministry by Jesus Christ himself. And they were the ones who Jesus, whom Jesus empowered to build the foundation of his church that's clear in Ephesians 2, 19, that, that they have built the foundation of the church, and Jesus is the cornerstone, and we are, we are stones in the temple of God. So much of the persecution that speaks, Jesus speaks about here is specific to those 12. But there are universal truths in this chapter that apply to all real followers of Jesus. And those kind of universal truths is what I want us to focus on today. So in the text, Jesus is not warning his apostles of potential persecution. 
He doesn't think, say these things might happen. His words are very emphatic. Look at what he says. Men will deliver you to the courts. It's no wonder that Jesus did not ask for volunteers. He called his disciples, right? And then he says, you will be dragged before governors and kings. It's overwhelming. My point is this, that in the Christian life, persecution is inevitable. It is inevitable. So we could break down the opposition that Jesus outlined into three broad categories. Number one, religious persecution. Number two, governmental persecution. And number three, cultural persecution. So first off, let's look at persecution that they would receive from the religious community. Look with me at verse 17, if you would. Beware of men. By the way, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We know the ultimate enemy is the devil, but he uses men and women to do his bidding. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. Now, the courts that, that Jesus spoke about here were the local Jewish courts. And even under the, the heavy hand of Rome, the Jews had some level of legal control amongst their people, even when it came to civil issues. So disputes were often adjudicated in their own courts, which were part of their synagogues. And convictions in religious matters were punished by flogging, which would include these hard strokes to the breast, followed by lashes, many, many lashes to the back. And Jesus is saying, you're going to be flogged, by the way. The apostles were eager, eager to, to share the good news of Jesus. The good news that their long-awaited Messiah had finally come to deliver his people. They would have thought, man, this would be well-received, but it would not actually be the case. And these people, they are told, will bring you in front of the courts, in the synagogue, and they will deem you a heretic, and you will receive flogging, whips, and beatings in front of your peers. But not only will the apostles be mistreated at the hands of the religious community, but if you look at verses 18 through 20, it says that they would also be persecuted by governors and kings, brought before governors and kings. Governors were Roman officials. They were overseers of Roman provinces throughout the Roman world. And kings would represent the heads of state. And when we read the book of Acts, you, we see that these things come to pass. Imagine that. Jesus said something, it comes to pass. And the apostles were brought before religious courts, like in Acts chapter 4. They were turned over to rulers of, of the Roman world, like in passages we, we find in Acts 14, 5, and in Acts 16, 19 through 34. But Jesus then mentioned one more category of persecution, and it has to do with your family and the culture at large. Look with me, if you would, at Matthew 10, 21 and 22. These words are alarming. Jesus says, brother will deliver brother over to death. 
and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated, hear his words, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not only would the disciples experience persecution from the religious community and from the the government, but they would experience hatred from their own family. A place, a, a people that where they were supposed to find safety, they would actually find strife amongst. Brother against brother, father against child, child against parent. And they would be then persecuted, not just by family, but by their culture at large, the secular world. Jesus says, you'll be hated by all men. Now, we can't take the word all literally there. We know not everybody in the world hates Christians. But Jesus is making a point about the pervasiveness of persecution amongst Christians. Now, being hated by your own family, I mean, it would be bad in this day. But you've got to understand, that was a patriarchal culture in the first century in the Jewish community. It was a a shame and honor culture. So to be kind of excommunicated from your family would have many economic and social implications be devastating. The bottom line is this. As the disciples would go about their mission to do the work of the kingdom, they would experience intense persecution. Are you with me? Persecution is not unique to the apostles. As a matter of fact, it's been and will continue to be the experience of every real follower follower of Jesus until the Lord returns. Let me just read you a couple of verses here. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Timothy says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be, not might be, but will be persecuted. Let me read you one more. You can write these down and look them up later. But Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's the balance again. It's like, yes, all right, joint heirs with Christ. And then he goes on, Paul writes, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Dan Graves, who writes for Christianity Today, tells a compelling story of the brave Protestant preacher, John Rogers. The day was February 4th, 1955. Rogers was led to the stake to be burned alive for his stand against the corruption and the bad doctrine of the Catholic Church. Rogers was was born around 1500. He was educated at Cambridge, and he quickly became a Catholic priest. But he became disillusioned with some of the doctrines and all the corruption that permeated the Catholic Church. Consequently, he resigned his post, and he went to Holland. And while in Holland, he became friends with the great William Tyndale, the reformer who is known for translating the first English Bible. Tyndale converted Rogers to the doctrine of the Protestant faith, namely that justification comes by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And Rogers then realized, hey, I can actually married and be married and be in ministry. So he got him a wife named Ariana. A short time later, Tyndale was arrested and would eventually be executed. But before his arrest, he left some Old Testament manuscripts that he had translated with Rogers. And for the next 12 months, Rogers then labored tirelessly to put together a complete English Bible by combining the works of Tyndale and Coverdale. And Tyndale had been declared a heretic, so, he, so, so Rogers could not uh, put Tyndale's name on the new Bible. And he could not take credit for it. You know, it had been easy to say, hey, this is, this is the John Rogers Bible. He couldn't do that. So he used the synonym Thomas Matthews. And the Matthews Bible would become the first authorized translation of the Bible in English. And when Edward VI became king of England, who, by the way, was a Protestant, John Rogers returned to England safely with his wife and his then eight children. Somebody said, oh, <laughs> And he was then given very high positions within the Church of England. But after King Edward died, a Roman Catholic that you probably know of called Mary I, we know her as Bloody Mary, <laughs> became queen. And after her rise to power, Rogers preached a powerful message to his congregation urging the church to remain loyal to the principles of the Reformation and the Protestant faith and to the true gospel. And according to Fox's book of martyrs, he exhorted his con congregation to, to be aware of, quote, pestilent popery, adultery, and superstition. And shortly after the ser sermon, Rogers was arrested by the mayor. He was put under house arrest where he stayed with his wife and children. Now, by the way, ten children with one on the way. After some time in house arrest, he was taken to the prison called Newgate. He was lodged with very violent criminals. And that prison would become his home for one year. And his wife, pregnant with now their 11th child, was not ever allowed to visit him. While imprisoned, Rogers was given opportunity to renounce his Protestant faith and to give allegiance to the Catholic Church. He refused. One clergyman member said, well, listen, thou to him, thou art a heretic. To which he responded, that shall be known at the day of judgment. When the sentence for his execution was passed, Rogers begged, was, was begged by the official, or he begged the officials to speak to his wife one last time. Can I just talk to her? Can I see my newborn baby? The request was denied. Rogers was then led to the stake by the officials. And on the journey, it is said that he loudly proclaimed over and over the 51st Psalm in front of the multitudes of spectators that filled the streets. And within the crowd, get this, his eyes caught the eyes of his beautiful wife holding their 11th child that he saw for the very first time. 
Next to her were his ten other children. And yet he was, as he was looking at them, he was being led to his death. So when he was attached to the post, the fire was lit below him. The flames quickly began to arise and overtake him. And when they began to burn his arms and his hands, he lifted them in the air as in victory. And he committed his spirit to his heavenly father. Awestruck by Roger's bravery, the crowds begin to chant and to cheer and to clap to spur him on and to encourage him. And his bravery and sacrifice gave courage to others that held to his same convictions of true salvation and the true gospel. He would be the first of 288 martyrs under the brutal war, rule of Queen Mary the first, Bloody Mary. Roger's story is not an isolated one. It's been a common experience throughout the history of the church. Again, even today, people are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, most of us in America will not likely face this level of persecution, perhaps one day, but, but times are proving to be more and more difficult for us. The Pew Research Center recently re re released a report that says most evangelical leaders believe that persecution is going to continue to progress and become more pervasive and ubiquitous in our country. We see that happening, don't we? You don't, I mean, unless you have your head in the sand, you know this is the case. Even now, if we are faithful to proclaim the gospel, and by the way, if we're faithful to live by Christian values, on some level, you and I will be hated. We will be rejected, and we will be persecuted. We'll be mocked, we'll be deemed bigots, we'll be misfits and accused of hate crimes, perhaps experience tragedies such as job loss. And so I shared a few weeks ago, and I think it bears repeating, that on one hand it's called, it's, it's difficult to call what we face as Christians here in America as persecution because you know, if we compare it to what other believers deal with in other parts of the world. But on the other hand, I really don't want to diminish what we go through because, one, do you know, one of the greatest human fears is the fear of rejection. I shared with you that Psychology Today reported that MRI studies have been uh, shown that when we experience rejection, the same areas of the brain become activated as when we experience physical pain. Rejection hurts. We're made to do life together. So as uncomfortable as that kind of prejudice and persecution is, no matter what level of persecution we face, the Bible implores us to continue to serve God and to proclaim the gospel. We do not back down. Jesus said in our text, endure to the end and you will be saved. It's not optional, friends. We must be willing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. So you, I think this begs the question, why in the world are people so antagonistic towards us? Why do they hate Christianity when we have a message of hope and life? You might remember 
The story in chapter 9 where Jesus cast out evil spirits from the mute man, remember? And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, accused him of casting out demons by a demonic spirit. Matthew 10, 24 and 25, let's, let's go back to that text. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more would they malign those of his household? In other words, Jesus told his disciples, they hate me, they'll hate you. And they'll hate all of my followers throughout human history. It's like, well, why in the world would people hate Jesus? He's so great. Let's talk about these categories again of persecution. Why would religious people hate Jesus? Well, it's because the gospel is offensive to religious people. Did you know that? Throughout the book of Matthew, we have seen the religious leaders of the, the first century who were constantly being exposed by Jesus. Their hypocrisy was exposed. And those spiritual elites thought that they were holy in and of themselves and that they were deserving of a relationship with God and, and they were, were deserving of the right to be in the family and the kingdom of God. But Jesus revealed that though they looked good on the outside, they were whitewashed tombs and their hearts were far from God. Jesus said that he came for the sick. He came for the sinners. And, and those religious people, and it's true today, religious people do not see their need for a Savior. It's offensive. It's like, don't put me in the category of the drug addict and the prostitute. They might need a Savior, but I sure don't. Friends, it is hard to reach, reach religious people with a gospel because they are so convinced of their own goodness so when you preach the gospel message, which includes the idea that we are all sinners, religious people will often reject it. Then you have the government. It's like, why would the government be so upset that we're Christians? I mean, we're called to be law-abiding citizens in the Bible. This would be a good thing. But I think the issue comes because of who Jesus claims to be. Throughout the gospel accounts, he made the outrageous claim to be the Son of God, to be deity, to be Lord. You might remember in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. He's saying, listen, I'll be at the final judgment as Lord. And in the Roman world, particularly, this was a problem because who was Lord in the Roman world? Caesar, the emperor, which meant that he demanded absolute, total allegiance without question. So it was a huge issue, as you can imagine, to say, well, actually, Jesus is my Lord. And it's an issue with the heads of state today in many parts of the world. It's like they know to follow Jesus means that you can't possibly follow that person in his corruption as Lord. There's always going to be conflict with their ungodly regulations. 
and the kingdom principles that Jesus calls us to follow. And then you have, it's like, why would family members in the culture at large hate Christians? You'd think they'd love the message of salvation. Well, we could probably list a few reasons, but let me just point out one obvious one. And it's simply this, people love their sin. They don't want to be told that they're living wrongly. They, they so to speak, want, they want to know that they are, uh, they, or they want to think that they're saved, but still can continue to live the way in which they're living, right? I'm going to turn my, who's texting me during church? Somebody just said, probably text me and said, hey, your time's up. <laughs> you text me? <laughs> <All right. laughs> so one of the reasons that people hate us is because they love sin. And listen, misery love co- loves company. Not only do they love their sin, but they want you to sin too. They want you to live in sin. Why? Because it makes them feel better about themselves. When you live righteously in front of them, you don't have to be like, ha I'm better than you. You know, it's just by you just living the life God's called you to live, it brings conviction upon people. I had a guy in high school. I was trying my best to live out the Christian life. He said, my goal is to get you to smoke pot. I did not, for the record. Though in ministry, I've thought about it a couple times. I'm joking. They don't want to give up their wicked ways. The, the Western mentality, you know, it's very individualistic. It's like live and let live. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. So they, they hate us. And we have some values that are very biblical that are not popular in American culture. The Bible warns against calling evil what is good and good what is evil, and that's exactly what our culture is doing. It's celebrating what the Bible calls evil, and we, we hold to those principles. It's like people hate us. So let me just say this. Persecution should come, because Jesus said, you'll suffer for my name's sake. Persecution should come for the sake of Christ, not from our own stupidity and abrasiveness. It's like, don't go out and be rude. Have you seen these churches that these, I use the term very loosely, pastors who stand out with signs that say, God hates fags? Sorry to use that language, but that's what they say. They stand out and they pick at this. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And then they're persecuted and say, well, this is what Jesus said would happen. You're not being persecuted for the name of Christ. You're being persecuted because you're ignorant. You're a fool. Look at Matthew 10, 6. I'm so sorry if that's how you all do ministry over there. I'm sure it's not. Verse 16, this is supposed to be so serious, I'm sorry. Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. Listen to what Jesus says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, serpents are shrewd, aren't they? They're careful and they have sharp powers of judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't go looking for persecution. He says, listen, if you're rejected in a town, just leave it. Don't have this martyr's complex to where, oh, I just want to go find somebody to be mad at me. No. But then he talks about being as innocent as doves. 
doves are pure and they're harmless. And Jesus is saying, be compassionate, be pure. And, and if you're like a dove, you're going to speak the truth. And finding, again, this balance is difficult because it's like, well, if you just resemble the serpent, if you're just shrewd, you'll be wise, but you'll also be manipulative. And you'll bite the people who get in your way. But if you're only like a dove, you'll be naive and persecution will crush you. So we must be shrewd, but we also must be compassionate and truthful as we go as sheep amongst the wolves. Let me just give you a couple points of application here and I'm done. Persecution gives us an opportunity to glorify Christ by being powerful witnesses. In other words, I, this is what I love. Persecution is not pointless. Paul wrote, remember, I, I quoted this Wednesday in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He talks about being jars of clay. And then he talks about how persecuted he's been. And he says this light momentary affliction. Well, Paul, what are you calling light and momentary? Imprisoned, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, abandoned, left for dead. Light and momentary affliction. He says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when you and I are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, when we are willing to endure persecution, it is doing something for us. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory as we live now for the glory of God. Jesus says you'll be dragged, verse 18, before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. One commentator told the following story that fits so well with the text. He writes that in the days of the Roman emperor Nero, there lived a certain band of soldiers known as the emperor's wrestlers. These were fine, reliable men, and they were picked from the best and the bravest of the land and recruited to be the great athletes of the Roman amphitheater. And in the great amphitheater, they, held, they upheld the arms of the emperor against all challengers. And before each contest, they stood before the emperor's throne. And then through the courts of the Rome, they rang this cry. Here's what they sang. We, the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. They would proclaim that. And when the great Roman ar army was sent to fight in Gaul, no soldier was more brave or more loyal than this band of wrestlers led by their commander, Vespasian. But news reached Nero that many of these Roman soldiers had converted to Christianity. And therefore the following decree was dispatched to the commander. If there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christian, they must die. The decree was received in the dead of winter. The soldiers were camped on the shore of a frozen inland lake. And it was with a sinking heart that their commander read the emperor's message. So he called the soldiers to gather together and he asked them, he said, are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian life? If so, let him step forward. Forty wrestlers stepped forward two paces. 
respectfully saluted and stood in attention. The commander paused. He'd not expected so many to step forward, many of whom he considered to be friends. Until sundown, he said, I shall await your answer, hoping they change their minds. But sundown came and they did not change their mind. The commander pleaded with them long and earnestly with, without prevailing upon a single man to deny his Lord. And finally he said, the, the decree of the emperor must be obeyed, but I'm not willing that any of our comrades should put you to death. So I order you to march out upon the lake of ice, and I shall leave you there to the mercy of the elements. And the 40 wrestlers were stripped and then Falling into columns of four, they were marched to the center of this lake of ice. And as they marched, they broke into the, the chant, this chant that they were so familiar with in the arena. Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. And through the night, the commander stood by his campfire and watched. And as he waited through the long night, there came to him fainter and fainter the wrestler's song. He sang it all night. As the morning drew near, one figure overcome by the expo exposure crept quietly toward the fire. And in the extremity of his suffering, he had renounced his Lord. He did not endure to the end. And faintly but clearly from the darkness came the song, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. The commander of Esposian looked at the figure drawing close to the fire. Perhaps he saw the eternal light shining from the center of the lake. But off came his helmet, off came his clothing. He sprang upon the ice, crying, 40 wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. The Apostle Paul, Acts 21, 13, said, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, if we had people who would just be willing to proclaim the gospel, even in the face of persecution. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I would just leave you that with this, that if we aren't being persecuted, perhaps we're really not living this Christian life out. People are always tolerant, then it just probably means we're living just like them. And it certainly means that we're not proclaiming the gospel that we're called to proclaim. I've challenged each of us over the next several weeks before leading up to Easter to reach one family with the gospel of Jesus Christ, at least one family. If you go out preaching to people, you might face rejection, but don't quit. Move on to the next. Invite them to church on Easter. And the week after Easter, we're going to have a baptism service. And I pray we baptize dozens, if not hundreds of people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be willing to suffer 
for his name's sake, for his glory alone. Stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for suffering for us, the ultimate suffering. Thank you for paying the ultimate penalty. Thank you for being willing that while we were yet sinners, that you died for us. That we might have your righteousness, right standing with God. Help us today, God, to be willing to be amongst the wrestlers, fighting for thee, for your victory, and from you the victor's crown. May it be so in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.